Ladies and gentlemen, start your stopwatches because you're listening to the dispatches on the clock and that means we're going to spend the next 15 minutes or less. In actual fact, let me stop myself right there and just say that we're probably actually going to spend more than the next 15 minutes talking about this issue. Not too much longer, but we are going to take a little bit longer today because today's topic is just too important to rush. And we're going to spend the next however long it takes us talking about Italy's new Prime Minister, Giorgia Meloni, and why she is the wrong kind of woman. So a couple of days ago, it was announced that Italy is going to have a new conservative government that is going to be led by Italian politician Giorgia Meloni. And instead of celebrating the fact that Italy now is about to have its first female prime minister ever, we had all sorts of absurd headlines and claims being made about the fact that she was little more than the reincarnation of Benito Mussolini himself and that his fascism and far-right extremism was back in all of its monstrous and bestial kind of ways. You see, basically in a nutshell, she may be a woman, but she's the wrong kind of woman. She is someone who has spoken very, very succinctly against the ideological hegemonies of our day. She has identified with great clarity the problems that we are facing in the West, and that is considered a threat and a problem by some people. And so in a nutshell, what she's done is she's identified the fact that we are laboring now under several ideologies which are doing great harm to us. The first of these, of course, is Marxism. Now, we don't see as much economic Marxism these days, but cultural Marxism is certainly the thing of our era. And what it does is it applies the principles of Marxism, this whole idea that life is basically a power struggle between the oppressed and the oppressor class, the victim and the victimizers. It applies this lens to every aspect of human life. And one of the things, of course, that it does when it breaks the world down into victim class and victimizer class is it is unrelenting and absolutely harsh in its judgments. There is a complete lack of forgiveness. There's no meaningful path of redemption if you're in the oppressor class. You must be effectively the victim of a revolutionary overthrow. And so what it does is it looks at things like Europe's past and it wrongly and completely absurdly claims that effectively anything and everything European is evil and that if you're European, that's part of your heritage, you carry around a great guilt. Of course, you're apparently a colonizer, despite the fact that no one in Europe has colonized anyone of late. You're still guilty for all of that stuff. It completely misrepresents the truth of the world in which the stuff took place. It fails to recognize, in actual fact, the many great benefits that European civilization built and brought into the world. Everything is just bad, evil, colonization, nasty, nasty, bad past. And of course, you must feel great shame and guilt for that. It also now regularly ties Christianity into this as well. It's almost like these people are either ignorant or willfully dishonest about the fact that Christianity has a body of objective moral laws which can be used to hold even individual Christians to account. So if you have people who claim to be Christian but which do things that violate the moral laws of Christianity – 
they can be judged as being guilty, as failing to live up to the call of Christianity that declares that if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you have to follow his commands. And if you don't follow his commands, then you're not one of his disciples. They act as if every evil that has been done by someone who was a Christian is somehow representative of Christianity itself, when the exact opposite is true. Christianity would say, no, this person has been tried and found wanting according to our tenets. Just because they called themselves a Christian, it doesn't mean that everything they did was authentically Christian. Of course, now this cultural Marxism also drags in things like masculinity and femininity. It pits men and women into a war with each other where men are supposedly the oppressor class. They're part of the patriarchy. Females, of course, are the victim class. That's why you have really bizarre things like females being referred to as a minority. They are not a minority at all, but they are if you view the world through the lens of power instead of basic reality. You don't look at numbers, you look at who's got the power and you claim that if you don't have any power, you are in a minority, even though you're not actually a minority in numbers. It now also drags in sexuality and so it talks about things like heteronormative thinking and behaviours as if somehow the normative mode of human sexuality is not heterosexuality, as if it's all just fluid. Of course, gender has been dragged along for the ride now too and they talk about things like cis-normative the idea that if you accept the reality that there are males and there are females, and then there is a smaller, a much smaller, tiny minority of people who experience either psychological confusion about their masculinity or their femininity, or who experience some sort of physical defect, uh, maybe their genitals are not fully formed, or maybe they have uh, both sets of genitals, a very small number of people affected by that, or maybe they have some sort of intersex condition. They basically would try and claim that somehow this is representative of, of a whole new category of human beings, which are neither male nor female. And that if you don't accept their claims that there are multiple genders all constructed by the individual, then somehow you're the bad, evil and oppressive one who is victimising an entire class of people. And of course, what you end up with as a result of all of this and lots of other things that they take along for the ride is the fact that you are no longer simply a person. You no longer have a common brotherhood or sisterhood, a common humanity with others. You are now a particular type of person. So your personhood now comes second to the fact that you are in an identity category. So you're a gay person, you're a black person, you're a straight person, you're a white person, whatever it might be, your personhood is now made subservient and less important to the identity group that they want to put you in. And as a result, our common humanity is stripped away from us and we are divided. And we can never form a genuine brotherhood and sisterhood, genuine community with others. Instead, we are reduced to our identity groupings and the best we can ever hope for is to simply be allies. So I'm in a 
class struggle, a, a power struggle with someone else, and you can't actually be my brother or sister if you're not in my identity grouping, you can simply be my ally at best. And that is a terrible state of affairs for any human being to be locked into. The next ism, the ideological hegemony that Georgia Maloney has rightly identified as that of globalism. And globalism basically arises in the post-World War II environment. You have a series of things that happen which give rise to a truly bizarre state of affairs in the world, just so highly unusual. We have never experienced this before in all of our history. We've been living with it for about 70 years or so now. It is definitely on the decline, and we are likely to see the end of it, probably for some of us in our lifetimes, and we are not likely to return to that state of affairs ever again. But basically what happens is after World War II, of course, there is a, a great fear of uh, a, a global dictator who will try and rise again and take control of the whole world as Hitler wanted to do. And so there's a fear that drives uh, a push to try and prevent that from happening. And globalism, uh, you know, sort of rides in on the back of that wave. There is also the fact that we have this new military technology called nuclear weapons, atomic weaponry. And that really is quite a game changer because it locks the two major powers of the world into effectively a stalemate. Now, traditionally, the major powers in the world would just go to war with each other, but you can't really take that risk if you think that the other power could drop an atomic weapon on you. It completely changes the nature of the game. And then thirdly, we end up with a situation that is really quite bizarre and that we end up with a peace or a relative peace, a relative stability, because it hasn't been entirely peaceful, but a relative stability, globally speaking, like we've never really seen before. And a big part of this is due to the Pax Americana, how America uh, conducts itself in the world after World War II. So one of the first things that it does, which is actually really unusual in the history of the world, is America doesn't subsume the territories, the regions that it's conquered in World War II. What it does is in places like Japan and the Philippines and in Germany is it actually helps those nations to rebuild themselves as their own nations, their own places. And that's kind of unusual because normally you would get conquered and you would become part of a territory of that particular nation. They also uh, enforce a particular global order in the world that allows for a degree of stability that increases trade and this leads to all sorts of technological advancements and other advantages. What happens though as a result of this is I think we get caught up in a false sense of reality, a false sense of security and globalism absolutely is born out of this sort of perfect storm of events and it gives rise to a sense of utopianism. The idea that maybe we can build utopia at the global level. Maybe we can solve all of the world's problems. Maybe the world isn't too small to actually govern. And what this utopianism does is it completely fails to account for the frailties of human nature, the unavoidable, the intrinsic frailties of human nature. The fact that we have a proclivity towards selfishness and greed and vice. The fact that power is a corrupting influence and when you are talking about the absolute power of, of, of global governance, then you are talking about an absolute and all-encompassing corrupting factor. And it fails to account for all of these things. Of course, associated with globalism, and we've seen a lot more of this now, is the rise of technocracy because the simple fact is you can't control that 
many people without the aid of technology. And so this gives rise to technocracy and a technocratic class. And there's all sorts of harms that have come on the back of that. Now, if you're in Italy, this has played out in some very specific ways. Uh, the fact that, for example, Italy has been really hard hit by the waves of refugees that hit Europe over the last 10 years or so, the, the various refugee crises that have happened, and globalism has failed to recognise the sovereignty of nations, the fact that borders do matter, and, and instead it has tried to sort of insert itself and usurp what should be the legitimate governance of a local region that we might call a nation by the local people who actually live and have to live with the effects of governance in those regions. And you have all sorts of bizarre things. Anyone who has dared to raise questions has been accused of being some sort of racist or hateful person. We've even had people trying to co-opt the Christian scriptures wrongly, I would argue, to try and justify these sorts of things as if there is no conflicting or competing interests here, like it's just these rich nations with lots of available space and resources who can accommodate untold numbers of refugees, when in actual fact that is not the truth at all, and a good moral approach to these things would consider all of these factors. A good moral nation would be one that is obviously welcoming to those in need, but would never ever sacrifice the well-being of the nation in order to try and accommodate that. It would never break its own back. It would never rob Peter to pay Paul, so to speak. And you see in particular the way uh, certain comments have been made by those who would lean towards this sort of more globalist view, the view that individual nations don't really have uh, the authority to govern themselves. One lady who just a couple of days ago really summarised the issue in a nutshell was the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. And she was at Princeton University and she was asked about the Italian elections. And she said this, if things go in a difficult direction, and I've spoken about Hungary and Poland, we have the tools. In other words, we have the tools to deal with that. And that is just astounding to think that someone would be making such extremist comments. That's where you need to worry about overreach and unjust expressions of power. When you've got someone who is talking about a country engaging in a democratic election being threatened with harm if they don't vote the way that the president of the European Commission wants them to vote. On top of this, there is also this sort of absurdity which undermines community and globalism because you hear phrases like the global community, but the global community is an absolutely vacuous concept because you can't actually form community with any more than 80 to 100 people maximum. That's what the research indicates to us. The sweet spot seems to be sort of around 60 to 80 people, but certainly any more than 100 people, you can't form community. So if you can't form community with any more than, say, 100 people, you have no hope in Hades of forming community with billions of people on the globe. You just don't. So it's a vacuous nonsense and it strips away human beings from the flourishing and the profound and important benefits which community, local community, actually give rise to 
in their lives. Which brings me to the third ideological hegemony, which is the first and foremost of them, and without which this particular ideological hegemony, you don't get globalism, you don't get Marxism, they all are built on this foundation, and that is the foundation of Enlightenment liberalism, sometimes called liberalism. The idea that the individual is the central and most important thing, not the community, not the family, but the individual. It declares that individuals, all individuals are born perfectly free. It declares that individuals uh, are only able to be governed if they give their consent to that. It declares that government exists so that large groups of individuals who give their consent to being governed uh, are able to have their freedoms maximised. That's the primary role of, of government, to maximise those freedoms. And, and of course, as I said, it declares that these principles are self-evidently true to anybody who is capable of reasoning about these issues. So you just use the gift of your human reason and you will come to these same conclusions. Apparently, Well, clearly that's not the case, though, because a lot of proxy wars have been fought by America. There hasn't been global warfare in a while, but there certainly have been a lot of proxy wars fought since World War II, where this very concept was attempted to be brought at the end of a gun barrel into those nations, and it just did not stick. The latest failure, of course, being Afghanistan, where the theory goes, if you get rid of the dictator, then free human beings will start reasoning, and they will say, hey, we think enlightenment liberalism is the truth and we want that and all the various forms of governance and culture that go along with it, except the exact opposite seems to have been true more often than not. And Afghanistan, as I said, is the latest example of that, where people said, well, in actual fact, no, we don't want that. We think that tradition, religious tradition, family tradition, local culture, these things actually might matter a little bit more to us. And so in a nutshell, what you end up with with Enlightenment liberalism is this idea that the self-choosing, the radical autonomous individual is what really matters. And that's how you should sort of view the world. It's all about consent. It's about this idea of this magical, mystical idea of, of reason, as if somehow reason exists in some sort of objective way where everyone is capable of reasoning and reasoning well all at the same time if you just take the restraints off them. That's never been the case and it's never been shown to be the case either. The end result, of course, is you end up with increasing license rather than freedom, more and more ability to do whatever you want to, uh, more and more self-gratification, a lot more hedonism, but there's not a lot of freedom at the end of that particular road. Now, of course, you can't really get to globalism and Marxism, as I said, without Enlightenment liberalism first, because what happens is uh, very much Marxism relies on Enlightenment liberalism because it says, hey, you, now remember yeah, Enlightenment liberalism, you declared that everyone is perfectly equal. Well, hey, we can see places where there's difference in the world. There's differences between men and women. There's differences between those people who have money and those people who don't have money, and they claim that every difference, therefore, is some form of of oppression. So it absolutely relies on liberalism. Globalism does as well, because you can't really have concepts like the global community unless human beings don't actually see themselves as being wedded to a family, to a community first and foremost. Instead, they see themselves as individuals separated from all of those kinds of of things. This is where Georgia Meloni comes into the picture, and what she does is, with great perspicuity, with great clarity, she identifies these problems and she represents what you would call an authentically conservative voice. 
as opposed to maybe the false idea that libertarianism is conservatism or the false idea that anyone who's conservative is some sort of far-right extremist. No, authentic conservatism is very much grounded in the Judeo-Christian tradition. It is very much built on this idea that there are pre-existing foundations, institutions, structures, traditions, which we are born into, that this life is too short for any one person to gain all of the possible wisdom necessary to live a full and flourishing life. And so we need to build our lives upon those traditions, while at the same time looking to the future good of those who will come after us and we act according to those two principles. So we build ourselves on the wisdom and traditions of the past, we form deep roots in those things, and then we act in a way where we're acting for the benefit of those who will come after us. One of the key tenets of conservatism, of course, is this idea of moral equality. The fact that we are not all perfectly equal, but we are all born morally equal. We are made in the image of God, and therefore every human being is a sacred thing. Every human being has an equal dignity. And because we have moral equality, the most important equality of all, it is never right to enslave or do deliberate harm to another human being, because when you do that, you are are failing to act according to the principle of moral equality. No one is superior to anyone else. So what that means is we are all one. We are not a gay person or a straight person or a black person or a white person. We are all persons. We are all morally equal and we should have a, a way of behaving and living that lives out and respects that fundamental truth. Conservatism also recognises that there are things that predate you and which give rise to you. Obviously, the fact that you are born at all can only happen if two human beings come together, form the first and most important of all communities, the family, and then that gives rise to you. You don't bring yourself into existence. You can't nourish and sustain yourself as an individual. You can't flourish if you try to live as an individual. You actually are born into community. You need community. Obviously, the first and most important of these is the family. Aside from being born into a family, that families grouped together in clans, clans grouped together in tribes, tribes grouped together in what we would call a nation. You might say that the modern tribe is the local church community or religious community if you're part of one of those. The point is, though, that your nation does actually matter. It has sovereignty. And the idea is once you get up to the national level, the purpose of a nation, though, is to be concerned about the welfare of its own people. And then those groups of nations grouped together should, if at all possible, relate together in the most harmonious way possible. And so this is very different from the concept of globalism where we're all just one and there are no nations. This is a very, very different concept. What authentic conservatism does is it recognizes two really, really important things. It recognizes the fundamental importance of community, community as a place of human flourishing and a place where identity is shaped. It also recognizes the principle of subsidiarity. So the idea that bigger groups of people should not be stomping all over and stealing authority, rightful authority, from those who might be lower down in the hierarchy. So, for example, the state should never, ever take away the legitimate authority of the family to self-governance. 
And so these things are all fundamentally important and they are things that are lost in Enlightenment liberalism, globalism and Marxism. So effectively what's happened here is Georgia Maloney has turned up on the scene and she's asking us to consider, well, who and what will define you? Will it be these various isms, these various uh, ideological hegemonies, will they define who we are? Or will we be defined by an authentic vision of reality which recognises that we are born into traditions, that those traditions do matter. They are great unifying principles that bring us together in meaningful ways. They give us an authentic anthropology, an authentic sense of who we are and what our place in the world is and you'd probably say most importantly what the limitations should be upon our place in the world. We are not utopianists. That is why we can recognize that even though Georgia Maloney has, with very great clarity, identified and described the ideological hegemonies of our day and the associated problems they bring to the world, that doesn't mean that she's a perfect leader and that she is not going to make mistakes along the journey. We're not utopianists. And being good conservatives, we also recognize the objective reality of our flawed and frail human nature and the corrupting influence of power upon that. And so therefore, you can have campaign promises that sound really good, but governance that fails to deliver. So you don't just buy into the words, you also need to look at the actions and judge a leader based upon those. And lastly, there are also going to be policies along the way that we are simply not going to agree with. There is no perfect politician. There is no perfect set of policies. We are not utopianists. But we recognise at the same time that it is far better to have someone who can clearly enunciate what the problems are than to have someone who is a card-carrying member of those problems. That's why, ultimately, Georgia Maloney is the wrong kind of female and why some people have gone and will continue to go out of their way to try and defame abuse, belittle, deride, and undermine everything that she stands for. I say, more power to her. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget, love by goodness, truth, and beauty, not by lies. And I'll see you next time on The Dispatches. On the Clock is brought to you by Left Foot Media. Support our important independent media work at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia with just $5 or more per month and you'll receive exclusive access to our full-length patrons-only episode of the Dispatches podcast every single week. That's patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. Link is in the show notes. Music.